Welcome to the Path 5 Podcast. The Path 5 team is a dedicated group of professionals hailing from diverse backgrounds, all anchored in making the world a safer place. Thanks for joining us while we dive into today's topic. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world and uh, when you're listening to this. And welcome to episode three of the Path 5 Podcast. This episode is entitled Big Resource Energy. For those of you who know, you know what I'm talking about. When you walk into the room, you got that big resource energy. People know. All right, people know. Last episode, we are operating more on the micro level, right? We're getting into weapons, we're getting into gear. And as much as we love to talk about that stuff, there's a lot more to our team and to this world. It was a really nice little break from what was going on, right? And I had, we're not going to pretend it's it's over. It's not. Um, right now, you're probably still getting slammed and inundated by all kinds of inflammatory statements and news, uh, especially tailored by mainstream media to get you all riled up. But not right now, you're not. Right now, you're here with us. And thank you for that. So we're backing off from that micro level. We're up here getting our 10,000 foot view once again. And we're going to back it up even higher, folks. And if I didn't do that, I would be an absolute crappy team leader because I would be wasting all my team's talent. I've got guys on my team with master's degrees in diplomacy. Right? This is their time to shine. This is the big dance right here because we're getting into what actually makes the world go around. And that's resources, folks. For a long time, resources functioned as an absolute premise of all conflict. Probably all conflict prior to World War II. And there's examples in history and myth. Helen of Troy fighting an entire war over a woman getting kidnapped. Um, sure, absolutely. But it's not like when, uh, when they broke the gates of Troy open, they didn't plunder it and take all the resources out, right? Resources were still the underlying core of why they were fighting. So up until World War II, that was really number one reason for going to war. You saw that your neighbor had something you didn't, or maybe you've got it, but you need more, or you think you need more, or maybe you're just greedy as hell, and you go after it and you try to take it. Since World War II, however, we have decided that conflict is now based on morality. Right? It's either I was hit first, therefore I'm operating in self-defense, or that's a bad man, he does bad things to his people, so I'm going to go remove him. That's relatively new in history. So the importance of resources is key. However, they are kind of transparent in American society, right? Uh, I guess Western society in general. We have a very resource-abundant supply chain, we have access to an ungodly amount of resources in our daily lives. In fact, I would challenge you to say that one of the few times that you even think about resources in your day-to-day life is when you're pumping gas into your car. And all that comes at a price. Yeah, Midas, that's a really good point when it comes to pumping gas. I think that's probably the first thing that most people think about when you think about resources, because we don't even really take cash out of our wallet 
to pay for said gas. You know, you just swipe your credit card right there when you pump in and it's all, it's all virtual now. Everything's in the cloud. Right. But obviously recent awareness regarding pollution that's caused by fossil fuels, but that is a huge resource that is used every day all over the world, obviously, you know, due to COVID-19, it's being used a little bit less, which is causing all kinds of issues. But essentially, when we talk about fossil fuels, we're talking about coal, petroleum, and natural gas, mostly focusing on petroleum. But this is a fuel that's formed from ancient dead organic matter, like forests, dinosaurs, that kind of stuff. As most of us know, a large majority of the world's oil comes from the Middle East, right? That that region of the world has historically been the largest producer of oil. Now, you know, Russia has since got into the game, yeah. parts of Latin America, South America. Um, but the most, the majority of the exported oil in the world is controlled by OPEC. And I think a lot of people have heard of OPEC, but OPEC is the organization of the petroleum exporting countries of the world. But we will talk about that more in a little bit absolutely and i think that the united states you know i'm just gonna say the western world as a whole right because i don't want to and alienate americans in this conversation it's i think that we had a, a real severe wake-up call to the power that opec really possessed between the first gulf war and the invasion of iraq in 2003 right because that was just a, a huge huge moment especially the gulf war because fundamentally, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia came to the United States requesting military help to protect their oil, which at that time was in our best interest because we relied on them so much. And because of that, it's super important to understand that this idea of United States self-sufficiency in the fossil fuel game, specifically on oil, moved from being a really nice thought to an actual foreign policy strategy. As a result of that, we realized that we are vulnerable as a nation to some of these other nations. I mean, we had countries like Saudi Arabia with 11 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11, and we didn't even give them a slap on the wrist. What did we do in turn? We removed one of their big power nemesis in the region, which is Saddam Hussein, several years later. And one of the things I'm most proud about that a lot of people don't understand is our progression since that time. In 2006, the U.S. imported about 60% of its oil. U.S. production ended up meeting our imports right around 2012. And now, since then, we are close to being an oil exporter. That is huge, folks. That means that the Middle East doesn't have us by the nads anymore. Not resource-wise. And that type of independence allows us to dictate better foreign policy initiatives, if we so choose. It allows us to be a little bit more independent and really analyze who are we backing up and why. Which I think is pretty nice. And I think a lot of our veteran population who have fought in Iraq would agree. Now... Some of the tactics used to obtain this independence are definitely a little controversial, right? Hydrofracking has got a lot of flack with the U.S. public. The reasons for that is it does have some potential negative effects. 
Uh, it's got negative effects on groundwater. A lot of the chemicals used in the hydrofracking process can inherently leach into the water table for that particular region. Obviously, we know that that is very bad and can lead to birth defects, cancer rates that are higher than normal, all kinds of negative impacts on the people in that area. Um, studies have also shown that it releases methane, which some say has contributed to the deterioration of climate conditions that the earth is currently under. Granted, there's a lot of debate about that as well. But either way, I think we can all agree that pumping potentially toxic chemicals into the earth's surface is not the cleanest way of obtaining energy. So it does come at a cost, don't get me wrong here. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's a good point about, you know, the negative effects that we've caused, you know, due to this increase in U.S. production. And, you know, that that's something that probably our, you know, generation or two down the line are, is going to be their problem. I mean, we're, I think we're doing what we can right now to try to mitigate some of that but it's it's not a problem that we as a world economy i think are ready to tackle from a you know negative environment standpoint and that brings us back to opec which is still the largest controlling organization when it comes to oil around the world but a little bit of background on them before we get into current events surrounding OPEC and uh, some of its partners. So OPEC was formed back in 1960 by Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. I actually had no idea Venezuela was in that crew. I thought it was all Middle Eastern countries um, until I was doing some research for this episode. So yeah, the more you know, right? The more you know. Definitely. But, like Midas mentioned, a little bit, none of those countries are spotless when it comes to conflict right so we're talking about conflict and when you look at that list of countries i mean iran and iraq have fought each other iraq invaded kuwait saudi arabia like midas mentioned talking about the hijackers from 9-11 i mean they are historically one of the biggest backers of terrorism all around the world but especially islamic extremist terrorism but we've placed sanctions on a number of those countries but specifically talking about both Iranian and Venezuelan oil. Iran has been under sanctions for multiple reasons, but starting back in 1979 when the U.S. Embassy was stormed and seized in Tehran. And they've constantly, for the last 40 years, been under some sort of sanction by the U.S. government. So, so let, me, let me ask you something real quick. I mean, interrupt, but this is more of a rhetorical question, but I just have to jump in on that. So we have Iran, a country that's been under economic sanction for over 40 years. How has that worked out for us? How are people going to sit there and act like economics rules this world? Yeah, Midas. I mean, that's a really good question. And, you know, 40 years of sanctions for various reasons, but I mean, now we're going to try to do the same thing in Venezuela or have started to do the same thing in Venezuela. They've been sanctioned a little more recently, but that's all mainly due to their leader, Nicolas Maduro and um, all of the less than less than above board 
things that he's been doing down in his country down there. Um, so Venezuela, interesting point when we're talking about them, they actually earlier this spring were trying to mediate a deal with Russia and OPEC to circumvent some of the sanctions that they've been experiencing from the U.S. government. And like Midas mentioned, with the recent boom in U.S. oil production, that's given the U.S. a huge new economic weapon to use not only against Venezuela, but also Russia, China, the rest of OPEC, instead of, you know, having our nads in a vice like we've had since the oil production has just skyrocketed in the Middle East, we now have a little bit of a bargaining chip and we can, we can leverage that production of our own oil and, you know, make, make people feel a little bit of their own medicine. And uh, that all ties together on a global stage when we talk about OPEC, Russia, China, China being the largest consumer of oil. Um, obviously that's dropped off recently and they're starting to build that, build that uh, consumption back up as they start to revamp and uh, restart their economy after COVID. I, I think in March it was announced, but the U S placed some sanctions on the Russian state oil company or some of their subsidiaries actually, but Rajneft, we sanctioned the Russian state oil company and they have since sold off all their assets in Venezuela as of May 15th. So if that's not a serious economic weapon to be feared, I mean, if you're getting the Russian state sponsored oil company to sell off all their assets in Venezuela, I'd say that's a pretty effective weapon, but Venezuela is obviously not the only cookie jar that Russia has its hands in. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a good example of economic sanctions working, right? It's, it's not a blanket statement saying they don't work because sometimes they do. However, I would really be interested in looking into uh, who that Russian state oil company sold it to. Uh, anyhow. Yeah, no doubt. One of the things that we like to do on our team is dig into second, third order effects because it promotes critical thought which is something that uh, a lot of people seem to be lacking these days. So the second order effect of us being in an economic and resource independent position to inflict actual productive sanctions against countries is that they have the option to band together, form their own new supply chain and just circumvent us. Therefore potentially forging relationships between some of our adversaries and it's once again, it's not like a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, but there are there are unseen and unpredicted consequences to a lot of this, which is pretty interesting. So Irish, I know you had something to add, buddy. What you got? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to add in a few points here because um, you brought up a good point with Russia having their hand in the oil cookie jar. When we talk about OPEC and fossil fuels, generally you don't think of Russia. You're thinking of the Middle East. You're thinking of possibly Venezuela, if you know a little bit about them. You know that China you know, consumes a lot of fuel fracking in Canada, but it's never really Russia. So one of the biggest influences on the European market is Russia. And by one of the biggest, I mean, it is the biggest. Um, and if you follow any of the recent history in the last five, 10 years with how NATO and Russia and, and Europe and Russia interact, 
you have to really start digging a little bit farther back to get how it got to where it is now, right? So I was reading earlier this week a RAND study uh, that was published in early 2000 titled Ukraine and the Caspian, an Opportunity for the United States. And it highlighted the difficulty of NATO's alignment with the Ukraine. So if anybody knows about NATO and the Ukraine, for many, many years we've been trying to align Ukraine into the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. But there's vast political sensitivities when it comes to Russia. Again, any history buffs out there would know that Ukraine and Russia, one and the same during the old Soviet uh, bloc republics, right? Kind of like the European Union is now. So to circumvent those political sensitivities, Ukraine was granted an alignment to NATO through what they call Partnership of Peace Program. Uh, and that continues bilateral military ties, it, economic ties, everything else. And that's not just for European countries, that is everyone in NATO. So that aligns the United States. So now you can see why the United States reacted the way they did to the Ukraine Crimea crisis. The Ukraine issue, though, is a difficult one for most people to grasp since Ukraine has historically been an integral part, an integral part of the Russian rule. And that goes back not only to the Soviet republics back into the 40s and, and well, actually before that, when you go to the Bolshevik Revolution, but even farther back in history to the Tsarist regimes. Russia brushes, brushes off the Ukrainian sovereignty as though it's a transitional phase, you know, like that weird teenage phase that you go through. Um, but it looks to build that greater influence with the former Soviet states and, and bring it back into its sphere. Yeah, U.S. influence yeah. is seen as a threat there. Right. It's kind of doing the, you're not my dad. And Russia's like, yeah, I am your dad. It's that crazy team rebellion stage. You know, everybody's been through it. We've seen it before. And that's what basically the Russian government believes that Ukraine is doing currently. Um, and, and that's been all over the news that people have read all about it, but that dives a little bit deeper when it comes to how the Ukraine hangs out with the West. And if we're going to go back to that old teenage philosophy, the group of friends that the you know, teenager has, don't really like them, stay away from them, they're bad for you. So the Ukraine has a very strong historic dependence on Russia from everything from you know, food stocks through energy, right? And, and we're talking about fossil fuels and energy. So energy dependence is one of the most diffi uh, difficult economic strong techniques of any nation to counter, whether it's us in the, you know, up until, was it 2012 you were talking about, when we decided to start really diving into the fracking and, and make up for all of our import uh, deficit that we have when it comes to fuels. When you look at Ukraine, they don't necessarily have that capability that we have. And they have accumulated a resounding debt and there's no solid number on it. And the, the best, best number I could get was an estimate of between 740 million and 2.8 billion around the 2000 timeframe. So those numbers are old. We're talking you know, 20 years ago now. So that is probably in my assumption gone up and probably gone up dramatically. Uh, but Ukraine does have one big card to play, an ace in the hole, so to speak, when it's coming to Russia. And it's able to resist it because the Russian energy requirement <laughs> is greater in Europe. And in order to get it to Europe, it has to pass <laughs> through pipelines that Ukraine controls. So it alleviates that possibility of Russia becoming the economic powerhouse, dropping that economic pressure like tariffs or swapping of debt for equity, um, all the boring stuff that nobody really wants to hear about. But one of the biggest moves that Russia did in recent years that I know the vast majority of listeners have heard about 
uh, was the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Yeah, exactly. That that was such a a bold move. I'll just <laughs> I'll just classify it as that. So, and this isn't the first time we've big, seen a move like this in history, energy right there. Big resource. Big energy resource right energy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but it's not the first time we've seen that in history, right, guys? Like, we've seen that several times. So, in your opinion, Irish, do you see this as being comparable to some of the bigger, uh, I'm going to say, passive annexation in history, such as Sudetenland back in '38? So I mean, that's a difficult tie to make uh, for a couple of reasons. And the, and the first one is that Sudetenland, Hitler told the world that Sudetenland is German. I'm going to take German, or I'm going to take the Sudetenland, annex it as part of Germany, and I don't care what you think. Right? And everybody across the stage didn't want another world war. So they said, okay, go for it. Yep. Yep. If you're looking at it on the other side, currently in 2014, when, they, when Russia annexed Crimea, Russia took Crimea because of what the Crimean election or referendum at the time had said, whether it was falsified, whether, you know, they, they went in there militarily. Um, we can't prove that completely. All that can be proven today is the fact that this so-called referendum stated that they wanted to leave the Ukraine and go to Russia. Right. Russia was definitely not going to stop that from happening. Right. So, it's a little more underhand, I'd say, or a little more of the under the table dealings that we don't necessarily see on a global stage. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely see it being a lot more underhanded. But at the same time, I mean, Hitler's main point in annexing that piece of Czechoslovakia in October 38 was that is based on the premise that there was a large number of Germans, somewhere around 3 million german ethnic population living there and therefore he said oh well they want to come and be become a part of germany again so we're going to do that which in a sense draws a lot of similar parallels to crimea and then you go further into that second order effect and you look at response well you bring up a really good point in the response piece right so there was really zero response in 38 to hitler annexing large, vast swaths of Czechoslovakia and Austria uh, when, when they did that in 38. But if you look at today and what the response on the European scale, global scale was to Russia, it's a little more complex. There was a response, right? So there's, uh, I love RAND. I read a lot of their stuff. Uh, there's a RAND study that was published in 2017 uh, titled Russia in the West after the Ukraine crisis. European vulnerabilities to Russian pressure. And that highlights a lot of the complexities of dealing with Russia and Ukraine on that international scale. Um, what we won't focus on during this point, um, but it's important for everybody to understand, is that Europe's vulnerability to disruption of non-energy trade or in financial flows is very limited, right? Estimated about 1% of non-energy imports, um, except for you know the import of titanium it wouldn't be affected by any sort of economic sanctions on Russia. The only a very small share of European, the European Union's total non-energy imports come from Russia. So again, that piece is null and void. What we're highlighting in this episode is that trade sanctions between the EU and Russia are cited, um, to, are cited to have stifled growth 
in powerhouse states of the EU, such as Germany, due to Russia's weakened purchasing power and their access to credit from the sanctions. Right. So for all those economic buffs out there, that's your little juicy tidbit to go read into. It's great. Now, focusing on crude oil and refined oil products from Russia uh, that are exports to Europe. So in 2013, if you're looking at how the Euro European Union interfaced with Russia, Russia supported on a net basis approximately 35% of all crude and refined oil products consumed or exported by the EU. So that means they either received uh, crude oil or refined products from Russia and exported. So there's an import excess process that goes in there as well. Oof. This is important to understand when it comes to policies in response to Russia. And one of those theories is explained in the study. And this is a quote straight from that's, that Rand study I was, I was telling you about. Is that all the major refineries of Warsaw Pact states are served by the Drezba. So I totally butchered that, by the way. This is a pipeline that could be closed. And if it were to be closed, the refineries would have to transport alternative sources of crude oil at a greater cost to make up for the absence of Russian crude. These Central European refineries have alternative pipeline connections to ports, but the capacity of those alternative pipelines would be insufficient to permit them to operate at capacity, imposing financial costs on these companies. That's absolutely massive. Yeah, it's huge. Absolutely. And continuing with my reading, um, just like anything else, when you start diving and in, in researching topics, one fact that I was unaware of is that the EU has a, an immense ability to refine natural gas, and it's stepped up within the last two decades. So just as the U.S. realized that they have a, a there's some sort of gap there in their import export of natural gas, EU decided to look into the same issue and realize that they have, they have a big, big, big problem if Russia decided to shut off that natural gas. So if Russia has shut down the pipelines, the EU has considerable excess refining capability. And currently the EU's refined oil output would be enough to cover the demand, just as the US realized with their own fracking and drilling processes. And the member states would only have a very small, though substantial, export surplus. So instead of having to import, they'd actually have an export surplus. So they have to find a buyer to, to purchase their now refined fossil fuels. Yeah, that's a huge takeaway. Huge takeaway. Absolutely. Yeah, sounds like the, the EU's finally taken a little bit of a hint from big, uh, big brother, Uncle Sam. We started doing our own oil and natural gas production they said oh that's looking like it's working out pretty good for you guys like or maybe we took the hint from them since i guess they started before us but we yeah can claim we'll claim credit for that one yeah definitely um a lot of those you countries... could probably look at parallels here as well um if you're looking at you know what we've done now reducing our import requirement of natural gas from the middle east because yeah, if, if, if you study what, what's going on right now in the european union the refining output has increased through the operation of the refineries to their full capacity at a cost in dollars, right? So there's going to be a lot of money changing hands. It's going to cost them some money, 
but Russia would be hit even harder, right? So you're looking at not just the immediate effect of what's going on in the member state of the EU, but looking at what's going to happen to Russia, and you realize why stuff didn't happen back in 2013 when everybody was freaking out about Crimea, um, is that Russia would be actually be hit much harder because they have this awesome pipeline infrastructure into the European Union, which is the safest possible way to pipe their natural resources in terms of fossil fuels into the EU, but they'd have to spend a whole lot of money to build the infrastructure to export from their their existing production if they don't ramp it down, right? So it, it's a supply demand thing. So once the demand goes away, you are now an excess of supply. You got to get rid of it somehow or just some cost and you start losing money. They'd have to build a vast infrastructure of pipelines in order to get to their ports whether it's, well, it could be pipelines and it could be also uh, over land, which is far more expensive uh, in order to get that to another country such as China or another you know large fossil fuel, oil, gas importing country. Now there's a whole lot more statistics and studies that we could jump in on. I probably already bored you to death at this point, um, but just it's, it's a very important thing to look at and understand when it comes to military power, economic power, the political dilemmas that are going on and the reactions of the globe. Uh, and that's the US, the EU, Middle East, you name the country and how they react to another country's indiscretions. You have to look deeper than what you're reading in the news. You have to look far deeper in order to under fully understand the story that's, that's being told. Bingo. Absolutely correct. And you know, you know, Irish. I was, uh, I was just thinking, if we're going to talk about podcast topics that we could, that could definitely stand on their own, I'm going to cover some precious metals mining going on in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And as a disclaimer, I will not be digging into the warring history surrounding the Democratic Republic of the Congo at all in this podcast. If we get interest Belgium. in it, yeah, Bel yeah, I, I'd, I'd be more than glad to do it but it's probably just going to be me rambling for at least two separate podcasts. <laughs> so most of, you know, if we're going to call it conflict mining, let's call it conflict mining that occurs in the DRC happens in the Southern province of Katanga. And that one area holds approximately one third of the world's highest quality cobalt reserves, along with, very notable amounts of copper, uranium, diamonds, gold. But what's important is the copper and cobalt that are in there are about to become very relevant. So we're going to see a massive rise in demand for copper. Now, copper is found all across the world. Cobalt is also found, but just not in this amount. So one of the main reasons why the U.S. itself is going to need copper and a lot of it is we're finally coming to terms with the fact that our entire electrical grid is starting to get old. I mean, if we look at the Paradise Fire that just happened out in California not long ago, that's because PG&E didn't maintain their lines the way they should have. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. average age of those lines was, I think, 68 years old, and they were supposed to be intensively inspected and possibly repaired or replaced at uh, 65 years old. That's going to be a lot of copper. Yeah. And I mean, 
if anyone's been watching the market, one of the craziest things to do is watch Elon Musk's Twitter and then see what happens to Tesla stock prices because it is hilarious. But <laughs> yeah. Tesla's very relevant right now. You know, they just built a battery factory out in China. They're building battery factories just about wherever they want because they know that they're going to need them. So this increase in electrical vehicles, whether it's from Tesla or Volkswagen, BMW, you name it, is going to be a huge copper and cobalt sink. So the average internal combustion vehicle uses about 30 kilograms of copper, you know, when it comes to wiring, sensors. But modern EVs will use anywhere between 100 to 150 kilograms. Wow. Huge uptick. Absolute massive uptick. Yeah, and that's per vehicle we're talking. So EVs use copper for multiple reasons. They need bus bars to, you know, transfer all this electricity. The electric motors have massive amounts of copper windings in them. Um, If we want to do an episode on EVs at some point, I would love to do that. But um, cobalt is also used in lithium-ion batteries. Now, the chemistry of lithium-ion batteries is constantly changing. You know, we're finding newer and newer ways to make more energy dense and reliable lithium ion batteries. Um, but right now cobalt is still used as a positive electrode. And I mean, we, we find lithium ion batteries in everything. I mean, not just EVs, but cell phones, laptops, uh, internet of things, devices, you know, security cameras, whatever, whatever it is, if it's rechargeable, Nowadays, it's running off lithium-ion and not nickel metal hydride or NICAD. Um, And Ivanhoe Mines, which we'll get into in a little bit, the CEO claimed that the demand for copper itself is going to grow exponentially as we move towards a world that's more focused on renewables. Because you're going to need copper for solar panels. You're going to need copper for wind turbines. Um, The amount of copper that's needed in a wind turbine is just immense compared to a traditional, you know, either natural gas fired turbine, coal fired turbine, whatever it is, um, our conventional ways of making electrical power. So as we step those programs up, we are going to be increasing our demand for copper. So a few of the, um, the major players down in, um, this region of the DRC, there's going to be Katanga Mining, which is in Canada, Ivanhoe Mines, which is, I just mentioned the CEO. They're also in Canada. And then MMG, which is in China. And it's it's interesting, and I'll kind of get into these Chinese companies in a little bit. But some of these major names stick around for a while, and they have mines all over the place. But from what I've found, these Chinese companies seem to be predominantly offshore companies only operating in foreign areas and they are predominantly doing it in Africa. So at the height of cobalt's price back in 2014, it was a massive worldwide story when it became known that uh, child labor was being used to prove to extract uh, cobalt out of the ground and it became a huge shame story for companies like Apple, um, companies like Dell that, you know, your lithium ions are coming from these 
mines that or your lithium ion batteries to power your devices are coming from these mines that are employing child labor. Yeah. And, you know, right around that time, you start to see all these transparency reports start coming out from these big name companies. And it, it was even, it was even more murky, you know, the ability to confirm the sources of these materials. Um, so there were a lot of, they called them artisanal mines, these uh, small yield mines. They're mostly dug by hand. They're mostly panned just with, you know, running water and shovels. Um, and that deteriorates the, the quality of the groundwater extremely quickly, just like you talked about with fracking. Um, and most of these small mines were run off of almost like a sharecropping system where you would have to you know, if you were going to work there, you'd have to go and the first, you know, X amount of what you mined becomes the property of the mine owner. Uh, and these weren't, you know, state-of-the-art mines by any means. We're talking right. about people jumping down in ditches of old mines that were left behind by old companies and never filled back in. You know, they never took the tailings, which is the part that you don't use. Um, typically, that's used to backfill the mine once you leave. That was never done. So you have these these kids... Uh, these untrained workers just jumping down into pits with burlap sacks, filling them up and bringing them out. So it's, you know, not good for the workers' health. It's, you know, not a, a good business model to have to, to pay to work. Um, and there was no issue with this when it came to the global market. Right. Um, most of the time, these small mines would be dealing with a Chinese middleman. Um, who would not ask who worked there, not ask, you know, how many people worked there, but just say, what's the quality of the product and how much do you have? Yeah. That was the only thing that mattered. And a lot of these companies uh, like Congo, Dongfang International Mining, when asked about it, they said, oh, no, no, we've done our own reports. We know exactly where you know, all of our cobalt comes from, all of our um, other precious minerals come from. <laughs> Hashtag De Beers, right? Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah. Oh, we've done the research. Don't worry, we've done, and and it obviously didn't do much to, to get the public eye off of them, but you saw a lot of Chinese companies start to get out of the market as the, the price of cobalt fell, as it wasn't, being used as much in the manufacture of lithium ion, but still very prevalent. Um, and another thing was these small scale miners, they wouldn't even know the value, the street value, the, the trade value of this ore. Right. They would never be informed. So they would have to give it away at whatever price the middleman said. Yep. So with all this negativity, you see a lot of these companies, like I said, produce these sustainability reports, these tax documents. They started documentaries about their community involvement in these areas, uh, showing how they built local farms to sustain the community. And they built schools and hospitals. And it was a very feel-good moment where you saw all these people getting jobs from you know, these massive companies coming out of China. And, you know, that being a very recent part of the region's history, 
is what led me to research what's going on today. Um, and Africa as a whole is estimated to contain 90% of the entire world supply of platinum and cobalt. Gosh. Half of the world's gold supply and two thirds of the world's manganese, some, you know, a good chunk of uranium, uh, Colton, which is another thing that I should have talked about. It's, uh, used in a certain type of capacitor, which is used in cell phones and all sorts of anything with an integrated circuit that's doing some sort of high level logic is going to be using this, uh, this resource. And as I said, it became very obvious to me that China is a major player, absolute major player in this. And they're moving in. I mean, now they have a base in Djibouti. That was what, 2018, 2017, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to see that they're not only doing this to secure their own access to natural resources, but Chinese, North American, European investors are seeing the rapid growth of Africa. The movement to industrialize has been pushed forward by all these mining firms that are, you know, setting up operation there, getting people trained in very technical, very high level operations. And then when they leave, you have this well-trained group that doesn't have jobs and you're starting to see a lot of Uh, Startup companies, a lot of very inventive uh, solutions coming out of Africa. I just watched a short documentary on a company that flies medical supplies using drones because the roads in some areas are impassable. Yeah, yeah. I think that's absolutely incredible to see. So I think China, for one, I know Japan has a base in Djibouti as well. I know that we have a whole bunch of bases over there. Um, Do you guys think that you know, Africa could be the next area of major military expanse. So uh, I'll, I'll step in there and my answer might be different from the rest of you, but I'm going to say no. And I say no for the fact that colonialism is still fresh in the minds of African nations, right? The apartheid, apartheid back in South Africa, the French haven't left. Uh, they're still floating around there with their foreign legion and whatnot. And what the U.S. and what China wants out of Africa doesn't mean that they need to use military force to achieve it, right? So the U.S., uh, there's actually a really interesting book called Dead Aid. I forgot the author's name, uh, but it dives into how we distribute, we as in the U.S. distributes aid to Africa and then how the Chinese does it. Uh, and just as a quick abridge to, to what that book says is basically the U.S. pays the government and says, do with it, you know, with the money what you wish, where China, when it comes to aid to Africa, will come in. And as you said, you know, their eyes are on the natural resources. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll tell whatever budding nation that they happen to be in, they'll say, hey, we're going to build you a port. We're going to build your roads. We're going to build out the mine sign on the line and give us your natural resources. That's all you owe us is the natural resources. Now that alone is like, oh man, this is awesome. That's jobs for our people. It's stability. After it's signed the dotted line, nothing within that agreement says that they have to hire a local population. So China actually just flies in workers from China, uses Chinese workers at the port, uses Chinese workers on the roads, uses Chinese workers in the mines, 
because they already have that capability with their workers back home and it's cheap because they don't worry about, you know, U.S. labor laws. Mine, everything they can possibly get out of that mountainside or, or that the pit that they're having to be mining out of. And they're like, all right, deuces, and they leave. And when it ends up doing it, leaves a brand new port with nobody able to operate it, brand new road system with no capability to repair it, and a mining expertise that is non-existent because they brought in their miners. So that's why I don't necessarily see them, you know, them as in China going in militarily because they don't need to. It's cheaper to do it the way they're doing it now. That's uh, that's a lot of really good insights, man. Because I feel like the U.S. has been accused of imperialism and colonialism in the modern age and using countries up and spitting them out, but we got we're nothing compared to China. In that regard, absolutely nothing. And, and it's like they've cracked the code on how to effectively extract resources, right? Because that's their one goal. And that is such an important part. They're not interested in nation building or sourcing infrastructure. They're just waiting to the point where it's stable enough to interject their own workforce to get what they came for and then leave. And that it's, I don't know, it, it's impressive in, in one way. It's like they're just not bound by the same rules that the United States is because they just don't care. They just don't care. And initially, I would have disagreed with you, Irish, but you brought up great points, man. You really did. Um, kind of going off of what you just said, though, realistically... I always felt that Africa was kind of the next Wild West, right? In a good way. The Wild West wasn't just a place you went out to OK Corral and gun people down. The Wild West was a land of opportunity. It was a land of discovery. There was a lot of new land that could be ventured onto. There's a lot of new experiences that could be had there that you couldn't really have anywhere else. And in that sense, I feel like we were on track to form Africa into that, but some different events have happened since then, primarily in the soft community. If you guys remember uh, 2017, the Niger ambush, right? Oh, yes. Some of the, the group guys got into it pretty bad there with their their support guys that they brought on mission with them. Uh, within the community, they took a lot of flack, we'll just say that. Um, but I'm not going to sit here and armchair it. I don't think that'd be fair to those who lost their lives. But the bottom line is that it, it really opened up the door for criticism and opened up a lot of Americans' eyes to the fact that we are there. We're operating there in a kinetic capacity. And people just pull the wool over their eyes every chance they get, thinking the world's this beautiful, magnificent, peaceful place. And that really broke that awareness I would argue in a similar, much, much lesser version of, but in a similar version that the Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia did for the American people. All of a sudden, America wakes up and we're like, wait a minute, we can't be doing that, <laughs> right? Like out of the blue when it's already underway and pulls back public support. So I, I think that events like that have really hindered uh, the American appetite for 
I'm just going to say that type of adventurism because that's ultimately what it is. You know, there's a lot of unknown. There's a lot of dark areas in the shadows there in different little provinces that house a lot of these minerals that we're just kind of afraid to shed a light on and dig into. Um, so a couple years ago, I would have definitely said, yeah, Africom's it. And that's why I was heading there next if I hadn't gotten out. But now I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. That's a really good question. And, and I saw a lot of parallels of what you were talking about, Roniel, between some of the minerals that are available in Africa and a lot of the minerals that are also available in Afghanistan. Something a lot of people don't know. I can't even tell you. If I had a nickel for every time I corrected somebody who said, oh, we just invaded Afghanistan for oil, I'd have a Lamborghini in my freaking driveway. Like, man. It, first of all, educate yourself before you open your mouth if you say dumb things like that. Second of all, Afghanistan for a long time is known as what? The graveyard of empires. It, was, it wasn't known as a cornucopia of minerals. <laughs> By any means. But guess what, folks? They are there. They are definitely there. And I can tell you 100% that that was not our reason for entering Afghanistan. However, we ended up in a bit of a predicament. Because we've discovered quite a bit since we first got there. The United States Geological Survey, USGS as it's known, has concluded that Afghanistan could hold... 60 million metric tons of copper. 60 million metric tons, guys. That is massive. Over 2.2 billion tons of ore and another 1.4 million tons of rare earth elements. The province of Ghazni alone has the potential for lithium deposits as large as Bolivia, which as, as of now is the world's largest known lithium reserve. All of that condensed in one war-torn country that, by the way, doesn't have much going for it in the realm of natural resources that are apparent. It's very hard to grow food there. Not much of the land is arable. A lot of it is mountainous and damn near unlivable. And the parts that are livable are absolutely dominated by corruption, whether it's from the ANA, the ALP, that's the Afghan local police, the Afghan National Army for you guys who aren't aware, or the Taliban, a lot of the people there don't really have anyone to turn to when it comes to earning a trustworthy economic independence. It's just not there. So in 2007, 13 years ago, guys, 13 years ago, a Chinese company that was state-funded invested $3 billion in establishing a footprint to mine copper in Afghanistan. Once again, that goes back to what Bruneo was saying about Africa. Copper might end up being king. And 13 years ago, the Chinese were way ahead of us, guys. Way ahead of us. Now, luckily for U.S. interests, that investment has netted them nothing. However, not in the realm of U.S. interests is a reason why. It's because Afghanistan is still struggling with their security situation. They are still struggling with their infrastructure. 
development. Um, much of the country is still unreachable by the current power grid. And I would argue that you can't establish that type of infrastructure until the country is stable in the security aspect. And this team, we've given multiple years of our lives trying to better that nation from the bottom of our hearts. And I mean, honestly, we have. But the same lack of progress that has plagued U.S. mission there militarily is also plaguing the Chinese mineral mission. But I used to say, half jokingly, but also with a, a pretty decent dose of sincerity and honesty, the Afghans that I was advising, I said, hey, if you don't like it how I'm doing it, you're going to love the Chinese. And they would stop and kind of look at me and they'd tilt their head and then the translator would get really awkward about it. The interpreter would, would convey the message and then they'd kind of grin a little bit and then they'd kind of look off into the sunset and think about it for a minute. I'm like, yeah, guys, like the alternative to us is going to be them. So that was kind of fun watching that sink in uh, for better or for worse. You make a lot of really good points there, Midas. And I think at this point, we have a natural transition to looking at more of the logistics avenues away from mineral resources and natural gas when it comes to you know the global economic stage. And if we're going to talk about any sort of logistics avenues, we'd be remiss if we didn't at least touch on the South China Sea. Now, I'm not going to go deeply into the issue uh, because that in and of itself could be its own weekly live podcast series with updates and still keep you in there for hours at a time because there's so much going on in that area. But I do want to touch on the fact that this is the prime piece of logistics infrastructure in the Pacific and you can't overlook it. There's no way about it. You can't just ignore it. It's going to be there and it's going to be the prime piece that everyone has to focus on and figure out how to solve as we move forward, especially in a global economic um, world that we're in today. So touching a little bit back more on the energy piece, um, there's a report back by the US Energy Information Administration um, that stated about 30% of crude oil transits from Africa and Middle Eastern nations, that's you know, most of the OPEC nations really, through the Straits of Malacca. So the Straits of Malacca are in, in Southeast Asia or South, um, the South Pacific area. Um, over to China to be refined and redistributed within Asia throughout Asian countries. So what you can see there is, is a reason why China wants to control that area. They want to control that massive sea lane through there because they have so much money dumped into that crude oil refinement process and then their export following that. China's expansion and claims in the South China Sea are deemed illegitimate by the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. So you, um, I've heard it said different ways, but UNCLOS or UNCLOS, however you want to say it. Uh, but if you ever hear or look at that acronym, UNCLOS, they're talking about the conventions of the Law of the Sea. And their claim is illegitimate for China's ability to control those sea lanes, which would then disrupt the movement of goods through the Pacific uh, to Asian North American states. 
Luckily though, when it comes in terms of like just crude oils, when you're looking through there, the U.S. only receives about 3% of that cargo that moves through there daily. Um, and that was published in a couple articles back in 2018. Uh, there's way more supplies, hundreds of millions of, of tons of supplies that push through there that aren't crude oils. But again, going back to our earlier conversation about crude oils and our, our former dependence on other nations is a very small piece of the pie when it comes to U.S. interests in that area. What I really want to talk about for China is a concept that you've probably heard three or four different names for because it's changed names since its conception. Um, but its colloquial name is the new Silk Road, right? So it's a super important move by China uh, that basically reinvented a long time or a former time in Chinese history with the, uh, the Silk Road. And back in 2013, President Xi of China decided that he wanted to change the way the game is played. So according to the, the Council of Foreign Relations website, so that's uh, CFR.org for anybody who wants to go take a look later on, uh, the concept initially was referred to as the One Belt, One Road initiative, focusing on the Silk Road, Silk Road Economic Belt and the Maritime Silk Road. Um, the vision that he had was to create this network of railways, energy pipelines, highways, streamlined border crossing procedures westward toward those former Soviet republics to include you know, Afghanistan uh, and Southeast Asia. But the real question though, that you have to think and you should think about even after this is done is, is why is this important, right? So if you look at the relations between the US and China, it's very easy to see that there are tensions there, right? And they've been growing. Oh, yeah. When you look at China's economic growth and it's been slowing considerably, you know, with the addition of, of new markets across the globe. And they're severely limited in their overland logistics movements. So what they're looking at is securing those long-term energy supplies via overland routes because that is the most difficult route to cut during an armed conflict. If you look at the size of China and the expanse of borders, routes that could be created through all these you know, high exporting countries with lots of mineral and, and natural gas resources, you realize that, okay, yeah, that would be a really difficult one to, to shut down as opposed to a sea lane where a naval blockade could cut them off, you know, fully at that point uh, with the, the amount of sea power the U.S. has. Very true. Um, and there are a lot of states out there that have accepted this initiative. And there are just as many, just about the same amount of states out there that have rejected it. Uh, push back on it. A couple of those, India, Japan, do not see this as a great initiative. So India sees China's push for that development uh, as a method to create an unsustainable debt burden on the Indian Ocean states so that China can seize control of the regional choke points. Mm. Something similar to what they would do in Africa and some of these countries that are less well off when it comes monetarily or, or even when it comes to their you know, import-export capability. Um, even with this skepticism with China, though, India still presses to, you know, have closer ties, uh, even though there are reports going back for 30, 40, 50 years of border skirmishes between both states. There's one recently, I think we were discussing the other day, 
with the team. Um, and then you're looking at Japan and, and Japan and China historically don't have a great relationship. No. So what they've done to counter this move by China was, you know, pledge large amounts of money for economic development projects throughout Asia, uh, try to offset this Chinese economic vision. Honestly, if you want to read more about the debt implications of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is, by the way, what it's called now, BRI, if you see it in the paper, uh, there's a 2018 paper titled Examining the Debt Implications of the Belt and Road Initiative uh, from a Policy Perspective, and it's penned by John Hurley, Scott Morris, uh, Morris and uh, Galen Portolance, and it's published by the Center of Global Development, and it's, it's a phenomenal piece that goes super deep into not only what China is pushing for, but the reasons for the pushback by India, the reasons for the pushback by Japan, and and what they have been doing, and it dives super, super deep into why India is so concerned about the debt implications that come out of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it like my boy Denzel says, it's chess, not checkers. It and China's is. really good at playing... Uh, Neither of those games. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, guys, we, we do have to applaud the ingenuity. And I think that one of the things that Americans really underestimate China on a lot of third world countries in general that we've recently interacted with is not to say China is a third world country. Obviously, they're not. But it's their capacity to play the infinite game. If you're unfamiliar with that, check out Simon Sinek little YouTube. It's pretty interesting, guys. And in one of the countries that is definitely playing the infinite game just as much as anybody else is Afghanistan. And we've already talked about Afghanistan briefly, but a, a real important piece of conflict dealing with Afghanistan and something that Irish already touched on is something that we've seen before, guys. How do you move resources through a war-torn area? Right? How do you do that? It's pretty difficult. So half the answer to that question is you don't. You move it through a neighbor. And that has bit us square in the butt before. Looking at the Ho Chi Minh Trail, stretching its way through Cambodia, Laos, all the way from North Vietnam. I mean, it was just an insane network of supply routes that I would say has been unrivaled until we got involved in Afghanistan. Because their porous border with Pakistan has been absolutely dicking us over the same way we felt the brunt of that in the late 60s and early 70s. And we didn't learn, guys. We didn't learn. It's terrible. And not to mention a lot of those supply routes that are being used against us by our enemies, run by organizations such as the Haqqani Network, were fundamentally formed as a vehicle for us to funnel weapons and aid to the Mujahideen in the 70s and 80s when they were fighting the Russians in Afghanistan, who were then, of course, flagged as the Soviet Union. So history repeats itself, folks. It sure does. Now, you flip that coin around and you look at how have we, when I say we, I'm talking about coalition forces, U.S. and NATO, effectively utilized our supply chains through Pakistan to make sure that we obtain all our necessary supplies. 
I would say we haven't done too bad a job, um, but it's something to think about moving forward. If we do not have a reliable ally, which by the way, if you look up reliable ally as a term in any dictionary, you're not going to find Pakistan under it. Okay, They are not a reliable ally. They've been stabbing us in the back since day one. Day one, folks. And we can talk about that in another later podcast. But if we don't have the ally-supported supply routes and logistics hubs already established or available to be established in our region, we shouldn't even bother with it, guys. We shouldn't even bother with it. Or if we do, we get in, we get out, we operate only on military logistics, and we're gone. Because it is almost impossible to effectively sustain that. The Port of Karachi is a major hub of supplies for that whole region. Everything that comes into Pakistan via ship due for Afghanistan comes through the Port of Karachi. So you can only imagine the vulnerability that we have shipping billions upon billions of dollars of military aid, both for our own soldiers and for our Afghan partner force through a country that has openly financed our adversary and supported them in the form of the Taliban. It blows my mind. It absolutely blows my mind. Not to mention if they can even get supplies over the border, folks, they got to travel on the ring road around the country, which is routinely cut off on ground by Taliban. And which implores us to use pretty unconventional logistics resupply methods, which produce some, uh, some great opportunities to shine. Isn't that right, Irish? Oh, that is completely truthful. And before I jump into uh, a quick story about my time in Afghanistan, I just want to circle back to what I said, you know, it, when, when China was playing, wasn't, was playing chess and checkers and aren't good at either. What I really meant to say was we're playing chess and checkers while China's playing Go. So if you guys don't know what Go is, look it up and you'll realize how screwed we are. But anyway, back to the, the point at hand. Uh, we pushed so many millions of pounds of, of logistic supplies through Pakistan that it, it's a topic that we don't hear about much in the U.S. news, right? So if you spent more than two weeks in Afghanistan, you'd understand this, that the U.S. spends billions and billions of dollars in aid to Pakistan to secure those routes, the ring road, the border crossings, all that, in order to supply our troops that are currently stationed over there. But Pakistan doesn't do what they're supposed to do. They allow, especially through some of those ungoverned territories, anything to go and happening, millions of dollars worth of stuff is stolen. Back in 2012, 13, 2014, when I was there for my first tour, we had the border shut down for so long, I even forget how long it was shut down for, but all I know is that we were down to 14 days of supply of fresh food, and then we had you know, our 30 days of, of MREs that we could chill on for a while while I try to figure out another way to get it in there. It's a landlocked country. Airlift is unsustainable. Out to the west is Iran. Can't ship it through the Middle East, Middle Eastern ports of Kuwait, Saudi Arabia. Iran's not going to let that come through. So it goes back to my earlier point of digging deeper into what's going on politically in, res you know, in response to some of these crazy moves by Russia, for example, right? Pakistan's acting a fool out there. So we got to figure a way to get 
supplies back to Afghanistan without spending way too much money and buying way too many planes in order to get it over there. So we have a deal with, with Russia and we're actually pushing a vast majority of our supplies at this point now. Uh, still a lot going through Pakistan, but a lot's going through the ports uh, in the, the Baltics, Black Sea, through those four, former Soviet blocs, through Russia itself, in order to come into Afghanistan from those northern routes to resupply us um, and kind of recoup, or at least get away from that reliance on Pakistan as that sole proprietor of our goods uh, to resupply our troops. Yeah, I mean, uh, Da Vinci, you remember that stuff we ordered? Like, actually, we didn't even order it. Um, it was ordered two years before we even showed up to country. Probably another year and a half has passed, closer to two years now. Do you think it's even shown up where it was supposed to go? Oh, no. No, for sure that is all over Pakistan by now. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's not stuck at the border because of paperwork. Yeah. Yeah, that was hilarious, by the way. Uh, quick little example for the, the listeners. Um, for our partner force we were working with, we ordered a bunch of uh, high-speed uniforms, right? Because they're commandos, and well, we want them to feel real cool. Afghans are really big on looking cool. It's like a huge part of their society. People don't realize. And uh, so we ordered a bunch of uniforms, and it was basically on a reoccurring basis, but it had been pushed out uh, about two years prior because that's about the cycle we are on at that point as far as ordering things and having them show up in that regard. And we couldn't even get them across the Pakistani border because it was listed as military items on the custom sheets, which is pretty hilarious because there's a war going on. What the hell do you think we're shipping into Afghanistan? And because it was listed as that, the PAC border police wouldn't allow it to come through. 99% sure they took that shit and sold it to the Haqqanis, who now have OCP uniforms. So, yeah, it, it, it's mind-boggling, guys. And it, it's the reason why so many of us choose to do something different in life. It's just, it's, it's too many kicks, too many kicks below the belt. Um, and, and it's real. So... Resources are not just raw materials coming out of the earth, folks. It, it's it's logistics, it's it's supplies, it's things that are required, and things that must be sourced, purchased, moved, and delivered. Right. So that's why we're just getting into the movement piece there. Not to mention, guys, the population of the world is increasing. It is increasing. Big time. And people can say, well, what about COVID-19? COVID-19 barely did anything to the population of this earth. And the main reason for that is due to medical advances. Is the World Health Organization exactly bristling with information on COVID-19 right now? No. Were a lot of hospitals breaking their backs in order to respond to the crisis and make sure that people were able to walk out that door at the end of their 14-day cycle yes advances in modern medicine are slowing down if not outright defeating a lot of those medical anomalies that exist on this planet as population control and this is just purely objective here folks right viruses are population control so as we progress science and medicine to the point where 
those things are not taking half as many lives as they used to, what does that mean for the planet? Well, I would argue that that means that we're on a collision course with resource-based warfare once again. There will come a time where fighting will not be based on the privilege of morality and will be based on, hey, my nation, my group of people, my tribe needs this to survive. Or we need this to progress. Or they're progressing a little bit too much. Therefore, I need this to remove it from their chessboard or their go board. And conflicts emerge by proxy. So I know that the media has been turning everyone's eyesight away from a lot of these topics as they're unfolding at our very feet. But I'm telling you guys, pull those resources back into your mindset. Start critically thinking about it. Truly, if you're on a exercise out to the Pacific PACOM region, you're like, why the hell do I have to go to the Philippines so I can get bit by 800 mosquitoes and sweat my balls off? Well, now you've got a better picture of how important we are to countering this whole new Silk Road initiative. What you're doing does make a difference. And if you're not sure, dig around. I guarantee you'll find a reason, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. We know that was one of our longer, one of our drier episodes. Next time we'll get into something a little bit, uh, I'll say a little bit more on the surface level. And I'm just retain everybody's attention. But I'm, I'm telling you guys, if you're coming here to learn, you're in the right place. I learned quite a bit from these guys. They're fantastic warriors and just as good intellectuals. So thank you so much. Be safe out there. Think critically. If you've got time, and I know you do, like, follow, comment, hit us up, give us a review. You can comment on any of our Instagram posts, guys, and say, hey, I really liked episode three, or hey, that was a steaming pile of dog do. Whatever you want to say, we would just encourage constructive criticism so we can get better. We love the engagement we've had with you guys already. It's awesome. It is absolutely awesome. We've recently made a lot of great inroads with some fantastic people in the firearms industry, guys. One of which is Mission First Tactical, who put us up with a standing code for 20% off their items. All you got to do is enter the code PATH5 at checkout. That's a capital P, capital F. One word as well, PATH5. And you'll get 20% off some of the best rifle furniture in the business. But thank you all so much for coming out. We appreciate you. We love the engagement. And uh, we're really looking for uh, some opinions from you guys on what you'd like to hear for the next one. We operate on a two-week cycle because we all have lives and jobs and... Um, loved ones and other things to do. So we definitely would appreciate some engagement from you guys. If you've got an idea for episode four, hit us up. Shoot us a DM on Instagram, comment, whatever you want to do. And we will put it before the committee of the team and uh, we'll see what we can get out here for you. So thank you so much. Stay safe, stay smart, stay alive.